Hello and welcome back to the newest episode of Fellowship of the Research podcast. I'm Megan Ward and I'm Sasha Newer, and we are so excited to have you back for yet another episode. Sasha, what's been going on in your life lately? I've been binging reality TV pretty hard, particularly Perfect Match. Oh yeah, that one's a classic. (laughs) It's been amazing and I just want to say how did I go from Shane being like the most psychotic person in the world to him being in a relationship that I'm actually rooting for? He truly did find his perfect match. It's beautiful. (laughs) I really hope they're together afterwards because I have been low-key stalking Chloe's TikTok and she's made some TikToks that maybe make it sound like they're still together. That would be great. We'll have to wait and see. We'll keep everyone updated on the podcast about what happens with the little reality TV that Sasha and I are watching. In the meantime, sit back and enjoy Turkey Time Part 2 with Jen Basie. Welcome, Jen. We are so excited to have you here today. Do you want to take a second and just introduce yourself to the audience? My name is Jen Basie, and I currently study wild turkey social structure and behavior at Trent University. Awesome. Have you ever been on a podcast before? I have not ever been on a podcast before, no. I was on the sort of local Czechs morning news a few years ago talking about my research, but never a podcast. Okay, so you have some experience, like talking to an invisible audience. A little bit, yeah. Okay, great. So, Jen, when you're not focusing on grad school, what else catches your interest? I spend a lot of time making art. So I paint a lot. I paint with oil paints, typically, sort of nature-themed stuff. And then if I'm feeling extra creative, I'll make sort of other weird art out of plant parts and stuff like that. Do you sell any of the art that you make? So I do. I do sell some of my art on Etsy, and then I participated in one First Art Friday in Peterborough. Awesome. I hope to participate in more. What is First Art Friday? The first Friday of every month, local artists can sort of display their art in different places around town, so small galleries and cafes and things like that, and it's a chance for the community to see sort of the work produced by local artists. Cool. Well, if anyone is interested in locally produced nature-themed art, we will include links to Jen's accounts below. So give us a bit of information about your past research history. When I was an undergrad, I studied conservation biology and then forest conservation and decided to continue with that into my master's where I studied forest conservation at U of T in Toronto. And there I focused on the biocontrol of invasive species. So I studied how a little moth called Hypena opulenta, doesn't have a common name, has the sort of potential to manage an invasive species called dog strangling vine. And so that's sort of most of my research past. I have some research experience with birds as well some big mammal stuff in South America. More recently with bugs in Ontario's forest. I have to ask, how can a little moth control something like dog strangling vine, which is so widespread? So it's during the caterpillar stage, and I always like to tell people that the book a Hungry Hungry Caterpillar is a true story because they spend their whole lives eating. Um, caterpillars are sort of the food life stage and then the adults are the mating life stage of most moths and butterflies. And so it's the caterpillar's job to eat as much as they can. And so it's at that stage that they have the potential to sort of defoliate, so eat all of the leaves on a plant and, and help control the population that way. And did you find that it was working in your master's? It helps. So with a lot of biocontrol species, we like to say that it's a tool in the toolkit. So it's not going to solve the problem by itself, but it can definitely help along with some of the other tools that we use for management. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And my axe. 
for biocontrol with something like this moth, are you just trying to promote this moth existing in the ecosystem or are you releasing this moth into the ecosystem to help with the control? So it's not native, so we do have to capture it from where it's native to, which is Ukraine, and release it in different regions where we think it might be effective. So there's lots of safety testing we do beforehand to make sure it's not going to have a negative impact on our local ecosystem. There's sort of a a lot of negative history associated with biocontrol. The idea of sort of releasing a species from somewhere else to control a species that's been accidentally released from somewhere else. And so all of that safety testing was done with Hypenopulenta. And so we felt comfortable moving forward with those releases. Is the war in Ukraine affecting this biocontrol system at all? Absolutely, yeah. So it makes it difficult for researchers to go back and collect more. So it means that we are limited with the genetics in the population that we have. And if the lab population collapses for whatever reason, the population that most of the research is based on then, it would make it nearly impossible to continue that research before they got more specimens. So yeah, that political instability definitely affects the research. Before we jump into the details of your current research, what has been the best part of your grad school experience so far? I've been thinking a lot about that question, and I think for me it's been sort of learning about my passion for sharing information with others. So I've been really enjoying teaching throughout my PhD so far, and so I think learning that about myself and and learning different ways to sort of share scientific information in fun and creative ways has been the most rewarding part for sure. So the podcast fits in quite well then. It does. Awesome. Right now I'm studying wild turkey social structure and behavior, and so that involves capturing wild turkeys, fitting them with little GPS transmitters and color bands on their legs, collecting some other measurements from them like weight, um, tail length, things like that, their general body condition, and then we release them and then I track them for the rest of their lives or the rest of the lives of the GPS transmitter, depending on which lasts longer. and see what we can learn about their habits in the ecosystem. Okay, so to kickstart our research segment, what program are you in? What year are you in? And who is your supervisor? I am in the Environmental and Life Sciences program at Trent. My supervisor is Dr. Jeff Bowman, and he studies fur bearers and other species that are sort of harvested in the province of Ontario, which is why he also studies wild turkeys, because they're, of course, harvested as a game species. I am technically entering my sixth year of my PhD, but I went down to part-time a couple years ago so I could dedicate more time to teaching. So now I'm working on finishing up a couple manuscripts and then hoping to defend shortly. Very exciting. All of us are in the Bowman lab and it's kind of exciting because the lab is in this huge transitional period where all three of us in this room are hoping to defend within the next couple of months, which is kind of crazy. And Megan will be staying on as a PhD student, but the Bowman lab will be undergoing a huge metamorphosis if anyone is interested 
interested in getting involved with the research that we're doing, there'll be a lot of openings happening shortly. It's true. We're shrinking from upwards of 10 students down to four or so students with some new incoming people. So if you are interested in some of the research we talk about today sounds like a good fit, please feel free to get in touch because I think we'll likely have some space. So just in general, why is it important to learn about wild turkey populations, specifically in Ontario? So wild turkeys were actually hunted to extinction in Ontario in the early 1900s and were reintroduced starting in sort of the 80s. And so since they were reintroduced, we really don't have a good understanding of their population size or where they've gone, how their genetics have potentially changed since that reintroduction effort. So yeah, lots of reasons to sort of do follow-up studies on that reintroduced population. So you mentioned they were hunted to extinction in Ontario. Was there anything in addition to hunting that caused that decline? And was it hunting for game or like for feathers? What was sort of the root cause of that decline? Yeah, it was primarily hunting for game. So a food source. Early settlers realized that turkeys were pretty easy to harvest and extremely delicious. Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys! So it was primarily the overhunting that caused the decline, but habitat loss as well. So all that sort of land conversion happening around the same time period would have contributed to the decline as well. What kind of habitat do turkeys use? They're considered forest birds. They roost in the trees in woodlots. They'll settle for the teeny tiniest woodlot, but they are considered forest birds. And they also rely on lots of forest food sources. So acorns, beech seeds, things like that. They also rely on open fields during nesting season, especially. So they like to nest in tall grass where they're concealed and their nests are concealed. But yeah, sort of a mix of those two habitats is their ideal. So why did we have to reintroduce turkeys? Presumably they were elsewhere in North America. America, and wouldn't they be able to just waddle their way back into Ontario after the Ontario turkeys had already been hunted in that area? Theoretically, turkeys can move around the landscape on their own pretty well. They walk long distances and, of course, have the ability to fly. But there's not really a reason for animals to move across the landscape unless they're being pushed in a particular direction or they're lacking some sort of essential resource in their habitat that they had before that's forcing them to sort of explore and find a new place to live. Those turkeys elsewhere in North America, presumably if their habitat is okay, then they're probably going to stay there and not move into new areas. And so we would have still had that gap in the ecosystem in Ontario. So jumping a little bit more into the research you specifically mentioned that you're studying, you mentioned you use GPSs to track turkeys. We have learned about pant GPSs for birds. So what do these GPSs look like for your turkeys? So they look like a backpack. We sort of snuggle them up against their back in between their two wings so that they're loose fitting enough that the turkeys are still able to open their wings fully and fly and it's not hindering any of their movements. But we have it snugged up so that it's not going to slip off of them either. It's got a little antenna that allows us to sort of track them across the landscape and download that GPS data that they've been collecting for us. I can't imagine it's very easy to put a backpack on a giant turkey, especially a tom, as we learned the term last week. So how are you handling these giant birds in the field? So after we capture them... Here's one dwarf she won't ensnare so easily. We capture them using something called a rocket net. And so it sort of shoots through the air and falls on top of the flock. And then we run full speed to try to wrangle them into their own individual turkey-sized boxes from under the net. And then from there, to keep them 
calm, what we do is when we take them out of the box, we put a sock on their head. And it's sort of funny. It sounds funny that that would keep them calm, but sort of reducing their visibility, especially how many people they're seeing and the noise level and things like that, all the sort of instruments they're not used to seeing, really does help to keep them calm and not sort of flailing around. Because yeah, a big tom opening his wings and, and kicking his legs can be dangerous for everyone, including the turkeys. So yeah, reducing their visibility really helps with keeping them nice and calm while we're handling them. That's amazing. You can just take such a big bird, take away its visibility, and it calms down. You don't have to use any sort of anesthetic or anything in the field. Yeah, nothing like that. So usually reducing their visibility and keeping our voices quiet, moving slowly, not startling them in any way, that's usually enough to keep everyone calm and safe. I would also like to just point out that this is the second time rockets have been mentioned in our podcast series, despite having no rocket-based research. So do a little soft dive into some of our previous episodes and see if you can find the other time we talk about rockets. So we've learned that you are a turkey wrangler. We have also learned that you then outfit these turkeys with GPS backpacks. The information that you download from the GPSs, how does that play a role in your research? What are you learning from that? Yeah, so the GPS information essentially contains a set of coordinates representing a location that the turkey has been and then a time and we can set how often we would like those locations to be recorded. It's just sort of a trade-off between the battery life of the transmitter and the resolution of the information. So how detailed the path we need. But with that information, we can calculate things like home range size. We can look into the specific resources that the turkeys are using in the landscape and how heavily they're relying on those different resources. And then also who they're interacting with. So how much time individual turkeys are spending with one another and how that might be connected to relatedness. When you get this GPS data back, how are you able to figure out what the landscape looks like that the turkeys have actually been on? What's the programs that you're using to deal with this data, basically? And so I typically start with a base map of some kind, and then I'll just overlay the points to get a sense of where the turkeys are going. And then I'm typically overlaying other layers of data as well that contain that information about habitat types. So data layers downloaded from our provincial government, for instance, mm-hmm those survey type data layers that are going to contain information about yeah forest type field type if that field's been used for agriculture recently all of that information is going to be important to figuring out where the turkeys are going and more interestingly why so these different fields that you're using with that presumably relate to the type of food that they're using or things like habitat or something else maybe? Yeah, a bit of both. Definitely nesting habitat, sort of availability and habitat selection. If we can look into the specific field types that they're using to nest in or the proximity between those fields and other resources. But then also, yeah, food resources available to them as well. So for instance, poults, wild turkey babies, spend a lot of time in in fields because there's lots of insects in fields for them. And they rely on that sort of protein source when they're small and growing. So when you were giving us sort of an overview of the research that you're focusing on right now, you mentioned you're interested in the rank of turkeys. What does that mean? How does one rank a turkey? 
Yeah. So I mentioned that we put GPS tags on them as well as color bands. And so those color bands play a big role in identifying the hierarchical rank of the flock. And so what I'm looking into in terms of turkey rank is, can I figure out the higher ranked individuals from the lower ranked individuals based on their behaviors? And does rank then have anything to do with their access to food sources? So are those higher ranked individuals able to monopolize those really good food sources within their home ranges? Or are they all sort of around the same rank and sharing those food sources equally? And so how I went about establishing that hierarchical rank is by setting up small bait piles. So I put small piles of corn. Turkeys are very corn motivated, especially during the winter. And trail cameras and then recorded the turkey interactions at these bait piles. From there, I was able to rewatch these one minute clips and then discern the winner and the loser anytime that there seemed to be some sort of aggressive interaction between two individuals over the food source. Hands off, that's mine. I don't take orders from stinking mogul rats. And then hopefully it was two tagged individuals that I'm able to actually identify. And from there, we use an analysis called ELO rank, which was first used to calculate chess scores. Actually, it's still used today to calculate chess scores. So anytime you have sort of a winner and a loser, but I've applied it to figure out winners and losers of my turkeys in the flock and then establish overall rank of the flock. So if a turkey has a high rank, what does that exactly mean for that turkey? Does it just mean that they get access to food? Are they like the strongest, baddest turkey? Like what's happening there? We're not really sure. So right now I'm working on modeling sort of rank with different factors, mostly related to food acquisition. So yeah, are higher ranked turkeys, do they have smaller home ranges? Do they have bigger home ranges? Are they focusing on one particular food source within their home range? Those are all questions that we're working on answering right now. But we think that probably Probably those higher ranked individuals do have some sort of control over access to those food sources in some capacity. Do you see any trends overall with which turkeys tend to rank higher? Overall, we're seeing that male turkeys tend to be the highest ranked. So adult male turkeys, this kind of makes sense because they're the biggest and the strongest. And then in my analyses, I'm seeing that jakes, so juvenile males, and then bearded hens follow those toms in terms of hierarchical rank. And then the lowest individuals on the rank tend to be those females. So they're small. When we're handling them, they're a bit more timid in general. And so it makes sense then that they would be sort of the lowest ranked individuals. For those that aren't familiar with turkeys, can you just explain what a turkey beard is? Yeah. So a turkey beard is the sort of intermediate step in between scales and more evolved feathers, more derived feathers. Looks just like a beard sitting sort of at the front of their chest and it kind of looks like a set of feathers without the sort of fluffy part sort of yeah a rudimentary set of feathers at the front there and it's a sexually selected characteristic so the females are typically selecting to mate with males that have longer beards and the most beautiful tail displays so all of those sort of sexual characteristics are kind of rolled into the males sexual displays in the spring and yet we see that some females also have a beard which is kind of interesting yeah so in turkeys around 10 percent of the population depending on the region of females will also have beards so we call those bearded hens it's true you don't see many dwarf women and in fact they are so alike in voice and appearance (laughs) that they're often mistaken for dwarf men it's the beards 
And in my analysis, I don't have too many bearded hens included in the actual analysis because as I said, it's only about 10% of the population. But the ones that I have included do seem to rank closer to the juvenile males than the other hens, which is interesting. Very interesting. So I'm interested in learning a little bit more about a wild turkey flock dynamics. Is it kind of like what we expect to see when we see gorillas where there's like one male and a bunch of females or is it like 50-50? What are the dynamics there like? So typically in turkey flocks, we see fewer adult males than we see adult females. So wild turkeys do this thing called harem holding. It's not sort of as distinct as we see in other species that have harem. Some species, there are male individuals that keep an eye on and mate with a group of females and that group of females is relatively consistent. Whereas with turkeys, there's a bit more mixing. So we see a handful of adult males harem holding a group of females, but we see a lot more mixing between the groups. So it's not as consistent of a harem. So to answer your question, yeah, we typically see more adult females in the group than adult males. And we do see a bit of that harem holding behavior, especially at the trail cam clips that I have. We see a bit of the males just sort of keeping watch while the females feed. So you mentioned that adult males, toms, are likely the highest in this hierarchy that you have. And then the females are the lowest. Do the males and the females fight often? Or when you're using the videos to determine rank, are you seeing more interaction? between juvenile males and adult males versus males and females. So we're seeing a lot more interactions between hens, so hens interacting with one another, so those females. And it's difficult to discern juvenile females from adult females, which is why we haven't divided that class any further. It's easier to tell a juvenile male from an adult male. So we saw lots and lots of interactions among the hens and lots of interactions between hens, jakes and bearded hens, but very few between toms and hens. So that indicates to us that they may be avoiding those interactions. So it might be that the hen knows that she has a very low probability of winning an interaction against a large male tom who could be even twice her size. So, And it could be that there's no sort of motivation for that interaction because of that harem holding behavior as well. Okay, so you taught us a lot about turkey rank today and how you're studying that, but what is the overall goal of your PhD? Yeah, so the overall goal of the project, I would say, is to understand Ontario's turkey population post-reintroduction. So how many are there? Where are they going? Why are they going there? What sort of resources might limit their dispersal? And what resources might promote their further dispersal into new regions? Since we did only begin this reintroduction effort in the 80s, they might still be dispersing. And so, yeah, those are sort of the overall goals. And then any other interesting things we can learn about them along the way. So things like rank, and and how their relatedness might impact their time spent together. Those are sort of bonus questions. And Jen is doing her PhD. So today we've tried to focus on one chapter of that PhD. She actually does do quite a lot more research. So if you are really interested in wild turkey dynamics, she may be someone to reach out to. Because again, while we did focus on resource use and rank today, she has a lot of other expertise as well. This brings us to our favorite segment about Lord of the Rings. Jen, who's your favorite Lord of the Rings character? I haven't seen Lord of the Rings. So the only character that I can come up with off the top of my head is Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo Baggins! So we'll say she that's my favorite. She says with a question mark. <laughs> 
It's okay. We did know that you know nothing about Lord of the Rings, and that is just okay. No yes. problem. So, Frodo is a little hobbit who ends up going on an incredible adventure. He has a team of elves, dwarves, wizards, and men who all help him along the way. But some say that the most important person in Frodo's journey is his best friend, Sam, also another hobbit. So throughout your grad school journey, who has Sam been for you? This is a tricky question. I've been so lucky to have a lot of different support throughout my sort of grad school journey. My lab mates have been so, so incredibly supportive, but I think the one person that I've been able to rely on and those sort of late night text messages when you're having a meltdown about coding and R or something like that has been Laura Scott. She's no longer in the Bowman lab. She defended her master's on bat behavior over a year ago now, and she's working up in Sault Ste. Marie but yeah definitely Laura Scott has been there for me sort of for the good parts and the bad parts. I'm sure she would love to know that she is your Sam. (laughs) Okay so you are in the final stages of your PhD. When Frodo finishes his adventures through Middle Earth he wants nothing more than to rest. What are your plans for when you finish grad school? Oh gosh, that is a good question. I think a rest is needed for sure. A rest from research and teaching. I love both of them, but yeah, maybe a period where I can turn my brain off and just focus on art for a little while. I finished my master's and started my PhD within a month of one another. So I've been sort of in the grad school world for a long time consistently. And so yeah, art break would be lovely. Well, Sasha was saying that she wants to tour around in a van. So potentially she can drive the van, you can do the art, it'll pay for the gas and then you two will be set. That sounds beautiful, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I was going to ask, are you planning to rest here or do you want to do a bit of travel as well? I haven't really thought that far ahead yet. I would love to do a bit of travel, but I feel at home in Peterborough now and, and yeah, I'm excited to sort of keep sharing my art with the community here. So I think either would be fun. Our final question for the Lord of the Rings section. There are many hurdles Frodo and Sam face on their trek to Mordor. They face an army of orcs, Gollum trying to steal the ring, as well as being hunted and actually stabbed by the Nazgul, of which you do not have any reference to. (laughs) What was one of the hurdles you faced in grad school and how did you overcome it? Oh, I think maybe the biggest hurdle has been imposter syndrome, which I know is something that many, many people in grad school experience. That feeling of not knowing if you belong and feeling like you're pretending and that your peers must know more than you or must be more competent than you, that sort of nagging feeling. Master's my friend. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. Not listening. Not listening. And it's a difficult one to overcome. I think it just takes sort of a good community of support to remind you that you are where you need to be and you are doing a good job. But yeah, I think imposter syndrome has definitely been the most significant challenge for me. I think you're our first guest that's brought up imposter syndrome and it's so important because I think the majority of people in grad school will face that at some point for a small period, if not their entire time that they're here Mm -hmm. and it can last right up until you're finished and have the degree. So I'm, I'm glad you're bringing that up because if you are experiencing those feelings, where you feel like you're not worthy of being here and that you're not smart enough. It's not true. The reason you're here are your own reasons and it's beautiful and everyone's happy that you're here. So never feel like you're not welcome or that you shouldn't be here because there's a community here to support you. Imposter syndrome is to grad schools what Sauron is to Frodo and Sam. (laughs) (laughs) I've said it. (laughs) 
The listeners should remember one thing from this episode, Jen. What should it be? I think that there's a misconception that wild turkeys are not very intelligent birds. I get people saying that to me quite often. When I tell them that I study wild turkeys, I often get some comment like, oh, they're not very bright, those birds, or or something like that. And so my take home is that they are very intelligent birds. They outsmart me in the field all the time, and they are very well equipped for living their turkey life. They have different skills than we have, of course, because they're living a very different life than we humans live. But yeah, they outsmart me with their powers of invisibility and speed and and lots of different factors. So yeah, turkeys are not to be overlooked. The leg bands are acting as like the one true ring. Just giving them like invisibility and superpowers. Exactly. So where can our listeners contact you if they're interested in connecting with you or learning more about what you do? Yeah, so I'm on lots of social media platforms. I've got a website you can check out to learn more about my research. Um, You can find me on Twitter. I'm Jen Basie on Twitter. And the rest of my contact info you can find in the show notes. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jen. We're really happy that you came on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening, as usual. We wanted to do a huge shout out to our guest, Jen Basie, for being a wonderful part two for our Turkey Talks episode. Thank you to Sadler House for hosting us, as always, and for providing the free coffee that gets me through each and every episode. (laughs) And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in again. Please feel free to share our Spotify as well as our social media accounts, FOTR Podcast, on Twitter and Instagram. If you're interested in learning more about Jen Basie, what she does, or anything that we talked about today, there will be links in the show notes. And as always, you shall pass. So you say for the the life of the turkey, can turkeys live long? So in captivity, they can live maybe 10 years. In the wild, we don't see them living nearly as long. They are food in the ecosystem. Lots of species eat wild turkeys. We just interviewed Kayla Martin, who is also in our lab, who also studies wild turkeys. And she was saying that she saw a bald eagle try to attack a pair of turkeys and watch them like flee to safety. That's really funny because a couple years ago, I saw a bald eagle flying above one of our turkey roosts and sent Jeff a quick text, our supervisor, about, you know, I heard some gobbling in the roost and the turkeys seemed nervous and he didn't think that a bald eagle would go after a turkey. Oh my.